Welcome to Supreme Benchwarmers, your number one podcast for easy and entertaining legal analysis. I'm Tori. And I'm Michelle. And welcome to our show. We have a really cool show lined out for you today. We have a couple of uh, Supreme Court cases as well as a political commentary, and we have our first guest star. Yay! Yeah. Are you super excited? I'm super excited. Me too. Okay. So first up on the agenda, I want to briefly talk about Donald Trump. Um, I don't want to spend too much time on this because I feel like we've heard enough about this in the media today. And we're not a political commentary is the most important point. We are not. And that's why I'm going through the legal consequences of the Trump implosion. I'm not going through um, the political ones. So a lot of um, people after the um, the video came out a couple weeks ago about um, Trump bragging about sexually assaulting a woman... One major issue that came out is that a lot of people were asking, can the GOP replace him this late in the game? The answer from a constitutional level is, um, yeah, they can. The reason for that is that um, while there's a lot of amendments that govern how uh, political positions can rule and what they can do and the powers that they're set to uphold, there's not a lot of amendments that govern um, how those people get into power. The only um, guidance that we have is the 12th Amendment, which talks about the Electoral College, but that's basically it. The reason for that, actually, it's not necessarily intentional, more like incidental, is because the founders actually didn't envision a party system the way we have it today. Washington um, actually, in his farewell address, specifically stated that we shouldn't have a two-party system and warned against splitting into factions because he thought that would ruin the democracy, which... I wouldn't have believed until this race, and now, like, I'm starting to see your point, Washington. But anyway, and so... Um, but th- practically... Practically, though, let me make this point clear. The GOP cannot replace him. That At this point, they just can't. There's just... There's too many people that have voted for him already. It would just be a giant fuck you to the entire Rep- Republican Party. They just can't. I mean, because, like, the majority of their members did elect him as their nominee. So, mm-hmm. like, just going back on that would be, I think a lot of people would lose faith in the democracy generally. But beyond that, too, I mean, the ballots are printed. It's done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so even um, if... And I'm, it would be sealing a loss for the Republican Party anyways. I agree. And yeah, it's just... Too many people would be too angry at that. And it defies our entire democratic system. But from a strictly legal standpoint, technically they could. The right. only thing that I've heard is that some have argued that it's the par- against their own party rules to uh, replace them this late in the game. The... Uh, the parties actually, like, the party committees function more like a union and that they're self-governing and they create their own laws. But with that also means they can destroy their own laws if they want to. And so, I mean, and some people have argued that even within their own laws, like Law 9 or something, I think is, like, what a lot of people are saying, that they're allowed to replace in this late. That's kind of, like, debatable. It's a gray area. So, um, but even, they don't even have to abide by their own laws. That's just the guidelines that they follow. So, yes, from a legal standpoint, they can... Um, my understanding is that they can um, remove him and put in a new nominee, um, but I mean, from a practical standpoint, they're not going to. But that's all that I really feel the need to talk about Trump today. I'm done with that. I've We've heard too much about him already. <laughs> so yeah, let's get back to what everyone cares about: the Supreme Court cases this week. <laughs> <laughs> Way more interesting. I know there actually have been some good ones this week, um, and both actually that I chose to talk about have to do with race. And that's more just coincidental. I thought that they were the two biggest um, 
cases that have come up this month. So most people know um, the Supreme Court went back in session in, I think, October 6th was their first day. They started No hearing... one knows that. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, maybe only I know because I love Supreme Court opinions. But they went back in session, um, and so they've been hearing arguments. They won't issue opinions until the spring and summer, but um, it's a lot of predictions have been made just based on the questions that they ask and the way the arguments have leaned. So the first one that I want to talk about is Buck versus Davis. It's actually a case from Texas. Nice, it's always. Al- it's always from <laughs> Texas, my home state. Um, so this is a really interesting case because it has to do with um, race and what you're allowed to say in front of a jury. So in this case, um, it, a little bit background actually about the criminal system generally, even though I'm not a criminal lawyer. Um, so this is like outside of my element a little bit. Oh, I'll help you with this. (laughs) Thank you, Michelle. I appreciate that. So generally, my understanding, actually, this is kind of every lawyer's understanding, is there's a jury that decides whether you're guilty or innocent, and then a judge will sentence you to what your punishment will be. So a judge will say three months probation if you're Brock Turner, or like 20 years, depending on who you are. Um, So they'll decide what your actual punishment is going to be. In Texas, they do something really unique in capital punishment cases. It's actually so unique that I had to go look up the actual criminal code for it because, like, I didn't believe that it was a thing. They will actually have a trial, um, which is on your merits, that decide whether somebody's guilty or innocent. And then from there, you move on to the sentencing phase. But only for capital cases, right? Only for capital cases. I think that's pretty routine in all um, in all states that do capital punishment. I think oh, that's pretty, it? yeah, it's customary. Because the judge doesn't decide if someone's put to death. The jury does. Okay, so I learned something new today. <laughs> yeah, I, like, I'm not a criminal lawyer, so this is all kind of, like, new to me. I only know, like, the constitutional elements of it. So, um, anyway, um, so I guess, like, most states then, if it's a capital punishment case, they have a different... Tr- essentially like a mini trial in a different sentencing phase where the jury decides if you should go to life in prison or put to death. So during this phase, um, Buck, who was the defendant, who is also like a really brutal murderer, I'm, I'm not defending him personally or what he did, and he, I think it's pretty clear that he was guilty, but uh, Buck's own attorney, he had a court-appointed attorney, brought a psychologist to the stand who testified that because Buck was a black man, he was more likely to kill in the future. That's crazy. It is crazy, and that's a really important element to this case because um, in Texas, future dangerousness is a necessary thing that you have to prove in order to put someone to death. And um, there's also evidence that the jury probably used the psychologist's testimony in their case. Yeah, why wouldn't they? I mean, that was his own psychologist. That's pretty convincing. I mean, that in itself would probably be enough. But they also came back during their deliberation and specifically asked for the transcript of the psychologist's case. Right. So to me, like, that's a pretty pure case of, like, that's strictly unconstitutional. And the Texas court actually agreed. They said that it was unconstitutional. But they said that it wasn't enough for to get an appeal. And I think we need to talk about that for a second. There's a difference between harmless error and plain error. Mm-hmm. So every time you have a trial, um, the jury's the one that decides. Mm-hmm. If you want to declare a mistrial or have uh, if you want to have a new trial, you have to show that some fatal error was so bad that it was plainly erroneous, not just a harmless error. A harmless error would mean it wouldn't affect the verdict. And a plain error means it does affect the verdict. It changed the verdict. Well, and actually, this case goes even beyond that because it it's kind of complicated. This, it's, this case has a very long procedural history. 
So it's actually beyond the normal scope because it's like it, Texas has like a special thing for when you're appealing to a certain level on the court that it's actually higher than even most criminal cases. So they had a really high standard and he was challenging mm-hmm. that even with their higher st- I think most of the justices actually seem to agree. Justice Alito, who's notoriously probably the most conservative mm-hmm person on the court right now said specifically that what happened in the penalty phase of this trial is indefensible. I mean, he went on to say that he couldn't support this decision in Buck's favor because it would open the floodgates for a lot of people to sue on the same, um, on the same ruling. And he also suggested that, um, that there was other evidence to show that Buck was harmful. Um, Buck's lawyer actually came back with that. Um, the lawyer that, not the same lawyer he had in Texas. Like, when you go up to the Supreme Court, you're generally going to have, like, an expert who, in con law. So his expert is actually Christina Swarns, who um, I'm a little bit in love with. I have a total, like, professional crush on her, like a lawyer crush, because, like, she was just, like, so poised and so great throughout um, the entire audio of that argument that I was just, like, really impressed, especially because they were asking her very difficult questions. So um, she actually pushed back on Alito on that and said, once the bell has been rung, you can't unring it. And so she's saying, like, once really egregious evidence has been introduced, you can't take that back. The jury has already been exposed to it. And she's saying that, like, this mistake is just so high that no matter what standard Texas is employing, um, this is a big enough mistake to overturn it. And if it's not, then Texas has too high of a standard, and that's unconstitutional in itself. So, um, I don't know. This case, like, kind of went back and forth. The justices asked questions on both sides. Particularly, Kennedy was on both sides. But I think most seemed pretty shaken by the level of racism that was employed in this case that I actually would bet money that this is going to go in Buck's favor. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, just especially with, like, Sotomayor, obviously, like, she's always, like, a champion of, like, racial prejudice and, like, fighting it. Mm -hmm. And she asked really hard-hitting issues, and it seemed like most of the people on her liberal block and Kennedy usually were agreeing with her Mm -hmm. when I listened to the audio. So um, that was one uh, case that I wanted to go over. just one one quick thing. Do you think it should be overturned? Yeah, I actually absolutely think Mm -hmm. it should. I think that we've always treated race as a protected class. I think it has, like, it's has such a terrible history that the law kind of has to go out of its way. And historically, in most of these cases, it has. It has to go out of its way to correct um, some of the inherent biases that already exist in the court system. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, like, this is a capital punishment case. This is the thing that we should be most protected with. And I'm sorry, like, Alito, if that means that other people have to go back and be tried, I think that that's worth it to um, avoid racial uh, biases, especially in capital punishment cases. And so, um, and that was actually another question that was asked during this. I think it was Alita who asked, like, well, where do we draw the line? Is it capital punishment cases? And Christina Sworn said, possibly. Mm -hmm. She said more, like, let's address issues when they come up that are this egregious. And she was just saying, like, this one is clearly egregious. And in the future, when issues come up that are similar, then that's where we draw the line. Um, So that was one case I wanted to go over. The other one, really quickly... um, was Pina Rodriguez versus Colorado. Colorado! I know. We had one case from each of our home states. Nice! I know. <laughs> and they were both, like, inherently racist. Yay! <laughs> yeah! Our state's being racist. So, in Pina versus Rodriguez, um, actually, this was not as serious of a ruling just in that Pina wasn't up. Pina Rodriguez was not up for um, 
capital punishment like in Buck versus Davis. But he did have very serious crimes against him. He was charged with uh, sexual assault on two accounts and uh, harassment with two teenage sisters. Um, the facts of this seem a little bit murky to me. He did have an alibi that didn't put him there. And so, I mean, that's kind of not up for me. I'm not on the jury. But I do know from a legal standpoint, I do not agree with the way the jury deliberations were handled at all. So the heart of this case is really... Um, when can you use jury deliberations and what's said during jury deliberations to overturn a case? Mm -hmm. Um, Usually jury deliberations are like a really lame version of Vegas. What happens in the jury um, room stays there. You're not supposed to talk about it. You're not even supposed to name what jurors were on the case. It's a really sacred thing because like juries need room to talk about things openly. Mm -hmm. Um, They have to air their grievances. They have to be real about what they're feeling. And then you're supposed to vote. And it's supposed to be unhindered by outside forces. There have been two cases in the past. One was not funny, but ridiculous. It happened in the late 80s. And actually, Sandra Day O'Connor wrote the uh, opinion on this. She's... In this case, uh, during the recesses, the jurors actually drank pitchers of beer and liters of wine Mm -hmm. and used marijuana and cocaine. Sounds like a fun jury box. Actually, one of the jurors described it as one big party fueled by rampant drug and alcohol use. So even in that case, though, Sandra Day O'Connor said this was not enough to bring in what happened during the jury deliberations to overturn a ruling. And from what I understand, there's very little you can do to actually um, get that other overturned other than, like, introduce outside evidence. Yeah, exactly. Or do your own investigations and introduce that in. Very rarely what happens during a court or during um, a trial is going to be used to overturn. It has to be pretty crazy, and especially jury deliberations have a higher standard than most things that happen in the courtroom. very protected. The other case that went up actually was a little more recently. It was in 2014, and Sonia Sotomayor was the justice that um, wrote the opinion for the case. And she, in this case, she said that the case in front of her was not enough to overturn a conviction based on jury deliberations. Sotomayor wrote that opinion. She's still on the bench. And she specifically said a case in the future that was so egregious that dealt with a prejudice such as race, then she would overturn a conviction. Um, This case seems to be exactly that. Um, One, two of the jurors came forward after the conviction and said that there was inherent bias in the jury, um, in the jury deliberation room. They said that one of the jurors was an ex-police officer, and he apparently just said terrible things. Like, it's just, like, so inarguably wrong. He made a comment... What race was the defendant? He he was Mexican. Okay. And he made a comment that, like, all Mexicans feel that they own their women, and because he's Mexican, he feels that he can grab them. He also made a comment that said the witness can't... that. Uh, his alibi witness that put him in a different location at the time of the alleged crime. He said that because that person was Mexican, he was probably illegal and illegals can't be trusted. So he just said awful things. Um, Actually, Justice Kagan said that this is the best smoking gun evidence you're ever going to have in a case like this. Because very rarely is a bias this clear, Mm -hmm. you know? And so in this one, it was like, this person clearly said things that were so racist he swayed a lot of people Mm -hmm. um the other juror said that he had a lot of standing and like he helped convince other people uh to support a conviction Mm -hmm. so i think um in most of the most of the justices throughout the argument seemed very very um upset by how biased it was 
even some of the more, like, conservative justices. Um, I mean, Alito seemed unconvinced. And he actually, (laughs) my favorite quote that he said in this thing um, was, he said, well, what if one juror had, quote, the sensibility of a lot of current current college students is in and just gets offended by another juror's remarks so he was saying what if one juror acts like a college student nowadays who gets offended at everything and just gets offended by something else says well we have to throw out the conviction i know stupid millennials we ruin everything we're the worst (laughs) so like um which then kagan actually pointed out well actually judges have to make that call all the time they have to decide, like, what's a bias worth throwing something out, what's not. This isn't something new to the court system. And she was saying by ruling a narrow ruling like this that says when a juror is introduces a racial bias, that's not saying that whoever's offended, you can throw out future convictions. Mm-hmm. It's just saying in this specific instance, it's very clear. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think this case was chosen specifically to add some guidance to jury uh, deliberations and, like, when you're allowed to break that. I think that's very rarely allowed to be broken. And in the past, like, it was just so, it was so far um, one way that I think this was meant to, like, kind of curb that and just, like, introduce some evidence and some guidance to lower courts of, like, when something is so egregious to Mm -hmm. overturn a conviction based on jury deliberation. So I think that if I was going to guess, this case will go in favor of the defendant. I think his conviction um, will, I think he'll get a new trial. So that was actually the cases, the only cases that I really wanted to talk about. I'll be covering more cases um, uh, later on as the term continues. So that's all I have for my segment. Um, and now, Michelle. Okay, now we're going to talk about the new 9-11 Saudi Arabia bill that just passed through Congress. And we're going to talk a little bit about what that is, what it entails, um, and what it means for our country. Um, So to start off, we have a guest speaker today. His name is John Miller. He's an expert of all things Middle East. He's been working um, in Middle Eastern relations for the past seven years, so he knows a lot about it. Also, he speaks Arabic, which is really cool. So say hi, John. Hey, everybody. All right, so I'm going to... Say hello in Arabic. (laughs) Marhaba, ya shabab. Keep halkum. Thank you. All right, so um, first I'm going to describe a little bit about what the 9-11 bill... Um, was, it's actually called the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act, but no one really, it's JASTA for short, Um, no one really knows the name of the bill, they all just keep calling it the 9-11 Saudi bill, Um, so that's fine, I read the bill in its entirety, which as you can imagine was a challenge, it was all of three pages long, Um, so I'm just going to tell you briefly what it's about, um, So the purpose of the act, it was originally enacted in response to 9-11 and the terrorist attacks here domestically. Um, And the provisions that are important, it says, A foreign state shall not be immune from the jurisdiction of the courts of the United States in any case in which money damages are sought against a foreign state for physical injury to person or property or death occurring in the United States and caused by an act of international terrorism in the United States and a tortious act or acts of the foreign state of any official, employee, or agent of that foreign state while acting within the scope of his or her office, employment, or agency, regardless where the tortious act or acts of the foreign state occurred. Um, International terrorism does not include an act of war. Federal court jurisdiction does not extend to a tort claim based on an omission or act that is merely negligent. So basically, what that means 
is the United States courts, the federal courts in the United States, are waiving sovereign immunity against any state who's committed an act of terrorism against any American citizen. Um, so this is really important because America has always, more or less, um, recognized sovereign immunity against either state governments, foreign state governments, or foreign state officials who are acting in their capacity. Um, Can you actually explain what's sovereign immunity? Sovereign immunity basically just means that you can't sue other governments for things that they do against American citizens. Um, This is really important when you have wars. So when you have a legitimate war against another country, you can't sue them for any... um, any acts that they do. If someone's murdered abroad during war, you can't sue that country afterwards for wrongful death. Um, and that's always been recognized. That's pretty much rec- recognized internationally. Every state pretty much has their, or every country pretty much has their own um, form of this. And this is really important because when sovereign immunity is in place, it really encourages countries to mend to form treaties and to be able to rebuild their alliances after the war uh, and to maintain, um, continue to be allies, continue their foreign relations. So that's why sovereign immunity has always been really important. It's also especially important with the United States because the United States um, (coughs) takes a lot of military action in foreign countries. And so by recognizing other countries' Uh, sovereign immunity, it kind of makes it so the United States doesn't get sued, too. Um, We'll go into a little bit more of that later. I just want to tell you a little bit about the procedural history of this bill. So this bill passed in the Senate back in May, Um, and then the House voted to approve this bill in September of this year, um, despite protests from Barack Obama who threatened to veto it. He made it very clear that if this passed both the Senate and the House, that he would veto it because it wasn't a proper... In my understanding, he hasn't vetoed a lot of bills yeah, during the administration. This is his first veto. Or not no, first no, no, no. This is his 12th veto. Yeah, yeah. So he, as soon as it passed in the House, literally two weeks later, he vetoed it. Um, which, again, it's his 12th veto. It's not that uncommon, but it is rare, and he did say that he would. Um, immediately after he vetoed this bill, oh, and by the way, he vetoed this bill because he believes that it would cause unnecessarily, unnecessary tension between the United States and Saudi Arabia, who is our ally. Um, he also believed that it would expose the United States and specifically veterans to lawsuits from foreign countries. Um, he constantly reiterated that it could lead to retaliation. Um, and threatened to complicate relations between relationships between um, our country and our closest allies. So then on September 28th, just like a week later, Congress overwhelmingly voted to override Obama's veto. And this is the first time, as John was saying, this is the first time in Obama's eight years of presidency that he's ever had any of his vetoes overridden. Um, the vote was insane. In the Senate... They voted 97 to 1. We have 100 senators, in case you don't know. So they voted 97 to 1 to override this veto. Um, Two people abstained. And then the House, when it went to the House, the veto was, or the override was 348 
to 77. This is insanely overwhelming. This never happens, especially with the first time they've ever they've overridden a veto. Um, and they even said Senator Charles Schumer, who's a Democrat. From and New York, which is important to keep in mind. Democrat from New York. He co-authored the bill with Senator John Cornyn, who's a Republican from Texas. Also interesting. They co-authored this bill, and he said in the statement... Overriding a presidential veto is something we don't take lightly, but it was important in this case that the families of the victims of 9-11 be allowed to pursue justice, even if that pursuit causes some diplomatic discomfort. So that's interesting that he backed up the fact that he overrid the veto because immediately after this vote went to the Senate and House and they confirmed that the bill will be um, enacted, there was immediate regret. The same day, there was regret from senators, from congressmen. Um, so, Senator Bob Corker, who's the Republican chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, said he had tremendous concerns about the law. Democratic um, Senator Dianne Feinstein confessed that the law is the wrong thing to do. This was the same day as they voted to override the veto. Um, and now... As of, um, as of today, 28 senators of both parties have issued a letter saying that they hope to mitigate any negative consequences of the bill. Um, so they're already looking at ways that they can mitigate the harm that is going to be caused by this bill that they just voted to override, <laughs> um, that they just voted into law. So um, a couple of other interesting things. The top two Republicans in Congress said that they're prepared to rewrite legislation allowing the victims of 9-11 tax to sue Saudi Arabia. That was less than 24 hours after Congress um, overrode Obama's veto. Um, so, I mean, there have, been, there have been quotes like this constantly. The House Speaker Paul Ryan, Senator, Senate Majority Leader Mitch Connell said that the measure could have unintended consequences, including the fact that it could leave U.S. soldiers open to retaliation by foreign governments. Um, so one quote I thought was especially funny, the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said, because everyone was aware who the potential beneficiaries were, but nobody focused on the potential downside in terms of our international relationships, and I just think the ball was dropped. I wish the president, and I hate to blame everything on him, and I don't, but it would have been helpful had we discussed this at much earlier than the last week. Which is pretty funny, considering Obama straight up came out. He sent a letter to the House saying what the consequences would be if they allowed this through. He said he was going to veto it. He said, please don't vote this bill in, because the consequences are going to be far-reaching, and he explained what they would be. And now they're blaming him and said that he didn't do enough to explain the unintended consequences. Um, so, John, you can talk a little bit about this, about why this bill came to be now. Well, I think the ob most obvious reason is that uh, it's almost November. People are looking to get votes, and Chuck Schumer saw an opportunity to, to help his constituents. I mean, look, as a politician, your job is to help your constituents, and there's no doubt that the, the, the victims of 9-11's families definitely have been asking for a day in court for, for 15 years, and, and Schumer's been pushing for this for a long time. And um, so, and to back that up, you know, it's been 15 years. So why did it wait? Why did why it take now? 15 years to get that? Well, the recent reports of these, the, the fabled 28 pages, these, um, you know, these classified, recently declassified information from the 9-11 Commission on 
um, the role of certain members of the Saudi government's alleged role in 9-11 now. So let me just round that out a little bit. So back in 2002, right after these attacks happened, the FBI launched a full investigation into why the 9-11 attacks happened. Well, they found out that 15 out of the 19 um, hijackers on 9-11 were Saudi Arabian nationals. Um, so because of that, they began looking into the ties between the Saudi Arabian government and the hijackers themselves and whether or not there were any links between the government and the funding it took to carry out this massive attack. Um, this, this report that was released that was declassified as of July of this year just came out. Um, this bill was in response to that. It wasn't quite conclusive, but it did point out a lot of really suspicious links between the royal family, the Saudi Arabian royal family, and um, a lot of the monetary and funding that these hijackers, that some of these hijackers um, received. So it opens a lot of questions. It didn't really answer any of them. Um, but because of that, Congress acted pretty fast to get yeah. this bill. Frankly, the, the, the pages raise more questions than they answer. I, mean, I agree. Everyone knew, or everyone has assumed at least, that there had been some role between some members of the Saudi government and al-Qaeda members. I mean... That's pretty much true. You pick a country in the Middle East and you'll find intelligence officers who've worked with Al-Qaeda at some point who are sympathetic. I mean, whether it's Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, Qatar, Turkey, even Jordan, who's probably the closest U.S. US Arab ally in the region, it's pretty much systemic that there are some um, you know, jihadist supporters in almost every intelligence outfit. But what you don't see in these 18 pages is the true smoking gun, which is what everyone thought would be there. You know, these 28 pages have been talked about for years. You know, they're basically omitted from the 9-11 report, and people assume they're omitted because, oh man, here it is. Like, this is the definitive evidence that Saudi Arabia planned and executed these attacks, and that's simply not there. I mean, there's definitely some questionable behavior. You see members of the Saudi Arabian government providing money, and other support to some of these hijackers. But what you don't see, which I think you would really need to see to definitively prove that this was the actual wishes of the Saudi government, you don't see anything showing that the king or the crown prince of Saudi Arabia had any knowledge of these activities, funded these activities, suggested that these activities take place. And, um, I mean, given that it is a true monarchy now, I mean, the Saudi Arabian royal family has got tens of thousands of members. So just because some government official who is a member of the royal family does something doesn't make it Saudi policy, but that's not something that your average American is going to know. And, yeah. and you know, they're going to see, oh, well, Prince so-and-so of Saudi paid money for this, not realizing that there's tens of thousands of Saudi princes. Right. So... Um, yeah, I mean, it, that, it, it's definitely not a, not a coincidence that this bill was put out in May because it was known to people, you know, especially people like Chuck Schumer, that these reports were going to get released, and I'm sure he saw that as the perfect time to uh, put out a bill like this. Well, yeah. And I'm curious, why, um, why were they classified in the first place? Why do you think so? Well, it was an ongoing investigation, and so it was really important that it stayed classified until they got all the information they needed to do to either launch in a full investigation or to launch some sort of, to take some sort of action against Saudi Arabia, which they never did because they didn't have enough conclusive evidence. Right. And of course, I mean, in the intelligence field, um, information we classified because it could hurt the United States if it got out, 
but there's a lot of different ways that that's determined. So we may not want someone to know that we know something. And that's probably the case here. The fact that we could say, oh, like this bodyguard of the Saudis was acting suspiciously or this prince was doing this. Well, okay, there's only so many ways that we could know that information. And so, you know, when, I, when a hostile government, which the Saudi Arabian government is not, but still, when any government finds out that you know a certain amount of information about them, they're always going to ask themselves, how could they have found out about this information? And mm-hmm. so if that's, in some cases, there's only one or two people in the world who are going to have access to this kind of information, you know, given the time and place. And so you're basically possibly outing a source just by saying, we know this. E- even, if you're not, even if you're not saying how you found out, for a lot of sensitive information, there's only so many people who could have passed that information on to you or only so many techniques you could have used to get that information. And so once you reveal that you have it, the cat's kind of out of the bag. So they may be able to get rid of that person that they suspected of passing the information on, or they may change their behaviors to where whatever surveillance method you were using isn't going to be effective anymore. And so that's that's basically why it was classified. Right. That makes sense. What surprises me about this entire process, about the fact that they passed it in the first place, and that the fact that they overrode um, Obama's veto, is the fact that right now we have a Republican-run Congress. Um, that's been true for pretty much of Obama's entire administration. Um, the interesting part about this is the way that this bill is going to affect America domestically, not even in, on an international level. It looks really, it's going to affect a lot of our military personnel. That's where it's going to hit the hardest if this goes through, because eventually this is opening the door for people to come in and sue, sue America based on the attacks. And we'll talk about this in just a second. But it was just really surprising to me that the Republicans were so adamant about seeing that this bill passed, because really, you would think that they, of anyone, would be the strongest supporters of letting this bill die. Um, so let's talk about, let's talk about the international implications and then we'll go into that a little more. Yeah. So, and I'm not a lawyer, but from my reading of the bill, the bill itself wouldn't give a foreign government standing directly in U S courts to sue, but what it will encourage is other governments to pass similar legislation. Yes. Um, and so that's where the problem is. And I think, you know, I think a lot of people are focused on war on terror veterans when we think about this bill because of Saudi Arabia, you immediately think, Oh, Iraq, Afghanistan, um, Honestly, I think they're at less of a risk than other veterans. So, um, you know, it's not a common fact. A lot of people don't know that the United States hasn't officially declared a war, mm-hmm. like, with congressional voting since World War II. All of our actions since then have come um, basically through presidential mandates. Um, the Korean War was done through a U.N. mandate, so that's, that's a little bit of an exception. But um, if you look at, you know, Vietnam, we had the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, um, the current the current. War on Terror is done through a bill that was passed in 2000, September 14, 2001, called the um, is it the Authorization for the Use of Force Against Terrorists. Right. Um, now, the Authorization for the Use of Force Against Terrorists, or as most people call it, the Authorization for the Use of Force, is still in effect. It is still on the books. Mm-hmm. But what a lot of people don't know is that the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, which was basically Congress giving President Johnson the authority to send troops to Vietnam, anywhere actually in Southeast Asia. It was very, very broadly written. Um, That was repealed in 1971, and U.S. troops didn't fully leave Vietnam until 1973. So there's a two-year gap there where there was essentially no congressional authority whatsoever for the U.S. presence in Vietnam. 
Um, there were actually some cases that almost went to the Supreme Court regarding the constitutionality of the of, of the Vietnam War, based mostly on appropriations. And we don't need to get into that here. That's you know, yeah, this is that was the first segment of this show. But um, yeah, so I, you know, if you're going to get sued for going to war and, and possibly commit, I mean, if 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 you're killing people. The bill, the bill itself says acts of war don't count, but if there's no legal authority for you to be at war, how are you really at war? So I think Vietnam veterans are probably the most vulnerable group of all U.S. veterans. Korean, um, too. And Iraq, actually. Yeah, Korean War veterans, but they're covered by a U.N. mandate, so I think it would be very, very hard to claim that what they did it could be not considered an act of war since this... I mean, basically the Korean conflict was the only war, true hot war, ever approved by the U.N. So I think it would be... Um, extremely difficult to pass any kind of international tests to call that an illegitimate war. Mm-hmm. And of course, yeah, Iraq and Afghanistan, and now the U.S. government's already been sued for its actions in Iraq and Afghanistan. There have already been Iraqis who sued prior to this bill. Um, but at least those guys have a congressionally mandated piece of legislation that covers what they did. Um, but yeah, for Vietnam veterans, there's basically a two-year window where there was no congressional approval for their actions. And so that's where you get to a lot, I think, murkier... Um, legal liability because, you know, ultimately the choice to go to war is supposed to, you know, as the Constitution says, is with the Congress. And so if there's not a congressional approval for your activity, um, you know, we'll see. I, as far as I know, it's never really been litigated before. But Okay, so the people that are most worried domestically now are the veterans. They're the ones that are going to get hit the hardest, um, which is scary. I mean, the United States is going to get hit hard, but, I mean, most likely... Well, we'll talk about this in a second, but most likely if someone were to sue the United States government, they would end up just saying, no, we're not going to let you sue us. Um, And there's not really much, you know, the United States is kind of a superpower. There's not much people can do to enforce judgments against us. Um, However, and herein lies the problem, is basically this bill looks a lot like um, America is going to enforce any judgments that we um, are granted against Saudi Arabia, America's going to find a way to enforce it. And that's going to cause a lot of problems, mainly because Saudi Arabia is our ally. And so that's going to cause huge disputes. And honestly, most likely what's going to happen is whenever someone brings a lawsuit, and honestly what they're probably going to do is bring a class action, um, which is scary because class action lawsuits means there are a lot of plaintiffs, um, there are bigger awards, damage awards, um, which means a lot more money involved. And so they're going to try and fulfill the judgments. Um, Saudi Arabia probably won't show up to fight that. Um, Just to be honest, most governments, even though we're saying we're waiving sovereign immunity. Saudi Arabia is not going to be happy about this. They've already come out and said that they're not, and they're not going to recognize this. They're not going to allow United States to sue them, meaning they're not going to show up in court. Well, whenever, whenever this is just a little background, whenever you sue anyone, whenever someone sues another person, if that person doesn't show up, the court enters what's called a default judgment against that party, and a default judgment just means they default get to win whatever lawsuit they just brought. Um, So basically, 
this is this is just side note as your lawyer i'm not your lawyer but anyways if anyone ever sues you show for the up. record not not lawyer we're not giving legal advice we're not on giving this legal podcast advice. yeah i'm just, just giving advice. just want to give a disclaimer from one person <laughs> to another lawyerly thing i've ever heard on a podcast <laughs> well this is a legal podcast i just want to make it clear we're, we're not, not giving lawyer. legal advice we're not giving legal advice but if anyone ever sues you show up cuz if you don't show up Legally, we're telling you this as a friend and a listener, not as your lawyer. I would suggest to anyone as a friend, you should probably show up. Yeah, Show up when you get sued, because if you don't show up, the other party will win by default. You'll have a default judgment entered against you, which means they're going to be able to collect from you. And the way that they're going to collect from you is that they can put a lien on any of your assets. If you own a house, if you have bank accounts, anything like that. They will put a lien on that. And this is exactly what's going to happen. And what is a lien, Michelle? Uh, I actually, I don't know. It's, it's just, it's the government. A lien is the government seizing your assets. It's essentially it like somebody else. I don't want to, just for simplicity purposes, you don't own it. But you have like a title. You have entitlement to it. So if I, okay, like if I had a house, then somebody would have, Never mind. I don't want to. They would put a lien on it and they could sell off your house to collect on their judgment. It's basically what it is. That's a simplistic version. It's it's essentially your assets will be used to pay off a lawsuit. Your assets will be liquefied, used to pay off your assets. Okay, so, anyways, (laughs) this is what's going to happen if there's a lawsuit, especially a class action one, against the Saudi Arabian government. Any assets that they have domestically here in America, the government will seize and sell off. That is going to be really bad for our foreign relations with Saudi Arabia. Which the Saudi Arabian government's already begun addressing. They've already they've already stated publicly that if this bill passed, they would sell all of their um, treasury bonds off. Mm-hmm. So I think you're going to see, and also their sovereign wealth fund also is a significant investor in the United States. So I think you're going to see them divesting from the United States, at least in the short term, um, to see how these cases go. Now, of course, obviously you can't seize necessarily individuals. If, if you're just a Saudi citizen and the government's accused of something, we're not going to seize the assets of individual Saudis. Um, so it's not like Saudi investment in the United States is going to stop overnight. But, you know, things like the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund and their purchase of U.S. Treasury bonds, that's going to probably stop, at least in the short term. Um, and what they do own, will, they'll probably try to divest as quickly as possible. Um, which obviously, I mean, is not great for the United States. They don't own a huge amount. They own $750 million, I think, in U.S. Treasury bonds, give or take. So, And what are the chances of them still being our ally after that? Um, I think it's pretty good. I mean, right now, Saudi Arabia is in a pretty tough bind. Um, you know, they're fighting a proxy war against Iran in Yemen. They're... Let's talk about the Yemen thing for a second. Yeah, sure. Didn't something big just happen recently? (laughs) Yeah, so two separate incidents. Uh, USS Mason, which is a U.S. uh, guided missile destroyer, is out in the Red Sea right now um, doing what's called like freedom of navigation exercises. So uh, about a week ago, a UAE flagship, a former U.S. naval vessel actually that we sold to the UAE, um, the Swift, was destroyed by an anti-ship missile fired from Yemen and... In exchange, whenever, I mean, this is one of the most important waterways on Earth, and whenever there's a problem, the the U.S. Navy and other international navies, it's in the best interest of everyone that this waterway be safe and secure, because we're talking about the Suez Canal, where a huge amount of the world's trade goes through. Um, You know, when when we had Somali pirates threatening this, we put together an international naval flotilla to fight Saudi pirates, or sorry, Somali pirates, and... um, 
when you have people shooting missiles into the Red Sea, that's not good. So yeah, we, we, we sent some, some U.S. naval vessels to do what's called a freedom of navigation exercise, which is simply to say, look, we're here, and you can't just like treat this like your sovereign territory. This is international waters. You don't own it. You don't have a right to do whatever. Um, and yeah, they were fired on twice from uh, Houthi control, Houthis, who are the rebels fighting against Saudi, Saudi Arabia and Yemen. Um, they were fired upon twice with anti-ship missiles. Now, fortunately, um, no U.S. sailors were hurt. The ships weren't hit. Um, we fired some anti-anti-ship missiles to, to to intercept those. Um, it's not clear actually if those missiles worked or if the anti-ship missiles fired by the Houthis were just poorly guided. Um, it's it's pretty unclear. But yeah, so we have these rebels who've openly fired at a U.S. warship, and just this morning. Um, we bombed them and destroyed some of their radar facilities. The, specifically, we, we targeted radar facilities that they could use to target other <coughs> ships in the area. So we've essentially ensured that a similar incident would be much less likely to happen. And I think that, that will pretty much be the limit of U.S. escalation for this particular incident. Right, but also, yes, that's very important, but also a week before Obama's veto came in... Um, or a week before the decision to override Obama's veto came in, um, it was a week after the Senate had voted on a resolution to restrict the arms sales to Saudi Arabia until it stops targeting civilians in Yemen. Um, already, Saudi Arabia wasn't too happy with us, or isn't too happy with us, because they think we're um, leaning too far towards Iran. And there's a lot of other tensions that are building up. So Saudi, Saudi Arabia and America's... Um, current relationship isn't the best as it is. And so this comes after a lot of that, and this is going to make it even more tense between them. It definitely does. I mean, so to give some background on the the weapon cell transfer, that was specifically for the sale of um, a specific kind of cluster munition, which we believe that Saudi's been, well, we being the Senate mostly, believes that Saudi Arabia's been using against civilian targets. Um, and so that's why that deal was blocked. Um, definitely that hurts our relationship with Saudi Arabia, but I do think the recent firing on U.S. naval ship and U.S. strikes against the Houthis have done some, some have gone some way Damage to reassure control. the Saudis that we aren't abandoning them. Right. Um, but of course, I mean, this bill, this bill complicates things. But as far as, uh, you know, people saying, oh, well, Saudi's going to turn away from the U.S. alliance, that's not a realistic option for Saudi Arabia. They've burned a lot of bridges in the region with other actors with other international actors. I mean, they've basically been our, <clears throat> our de facto, you know, proxy in the region since the 60s and 70s. We basically since we had the Nixon Doctrine, where we, we established countries in each region to be our proxy in the region. Saudi Arabia has been one of our proxies in the Middle East, and they'll, they'll probably continue to do so. Um, but yeah, I mean, our relations are, are strained, and, they, and they're worse than they've been in a long time. Mm-hmm. But there's also newer, younger leadership in Saudi Arabia and the Crown Prince who's working to, you know, change Saudi's image and, and change the relationship with the United States. And so it's not, this is not a death knell for U.S.-Saudi relationship, which a lot of people are, are paying it to be. I, I think that that's a little bit hyperbolic. Mm-hmm. Um, the relationship's too important to both sides. But could it be to other Middle Eastern countries who this bill might open up? Um, this bill might open up lawsuits to not only Saudi Arabia <clears throat> for the 9-11 attacks, but also other Middle Eastern countries who have, you know, harmed Americans abroad. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, 
it would be difficult to find a Middle Eastern country where a U.S. citizen has not been, if not Kept. killed, then, then hurt by a terrorist action. I think the harder part would be proving that it was in some way a state-sponsored act. I mean, if you, for example, uh, some of the most famous U.S. bombings abroad have been done by Hezbollah, which is obviously not sponsored mm-hmm. by the government of Lebanon, for example. <laughs> um, now, I think the probably the perennial state that you would see be linked to state terrorism would be Iran. Yeah, We've definitely. already successfully su- sued Iran. People have won cases and judgments against Iran. Let me talk about that for just a second, yeah. actually. Go I think this it. is really interesting. <clears throat> a lot of people are looking at this bill as a brand new thing, a brand new waiver of our of other foreign countries' um, sovereign immunity um, and a brand new way to sue foreign government for terrorist acts. It's actually not. Um, in 1976, the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act was enacted, and it said it basically recognized foreign government sovereign immunity from being sued, with certain exceptions. Um, and then in 1996, the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act um, came about, and this solidified the exceptions. And basically, um, the, se- the exceptions are for... Um, we're able to waive foreign countries' sovereign sovereign immunity for acts of state-sponsored terrorism. Um, and this act, the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, specifically says that this exception applies to um, any, any money damages that are sought for any um, personal injury or death that was caused by the act of torture, extrajudicial killing, aircraft sabotage, hostage-taking or um, material support for any um, terrorist activity that's sponsored by an official or a foreign state government acting within their own capacity. So this has been around for a while. It's been around for at least, you know, 20 years. And this, under this act, it's actually been used, you don't hear about this, but it's actually been used over 100 times. It's probably been used closer to 500 times um, to bring suits from where Americans have been traveling abroad and have been killed in terrorist attacks. And um, as I was saying before about the default judgments, a lot of these suits have been brought against Iran. Um, That's one of the number one places that it was brought. They've also been brought against Iraq, the Palestinian Authority, Syria, North Korea, um, so it's been brought a, against a lot of state governments or foreign foreign countries' governments, um, and they've won them all. <laughs> I mean, they've won them all mainly, again, because they're default judgments and no one really shows up. These governments aren't going to recognize these lawsuits, and they're not going to show up to defend them. Well, one thing that's really important is despite the fact that we've won so many of these um, of these lawsuits— no money's ever been collected. Um, I think there was one case against the Bank of Iran where we actually were, and this was a recent one in the last couple of months, where we were actually able to collect some judgment. But most of the time, the collection of judgments is actually impossible because the United States has, the United States government, the executive branch, um, has consistently worked to prevent victims from being able to. Con- collect damages because they're worried about the political implications. They're worried about the, um, the effect that it would have on our relationships between these countries. And so no one's ever seen a dollar. It just doesn't happen. Well, the, the thing about this new bill, the JASTA bill, the 9-11 bill, 
is that the fact that it was um, the fact that Congress worked so hard to pass this bill, bill including overriding Obama's veto, means that they're probably going to work pretty hard to make sure that this judgment is collected, um, which is kind of a, a scary. Th- it's it's a new concept. Um, also, even though this bill was primarily created in order to provide relief, monetary relief for the victims of 9-11, it's not actually restricted to that, at least not as it's written right now. So anyone can now use this to sue any anyone, any country where they feel like they've been harmed. Um, another interesting fact about the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, even though these default judgments have been entered, um, the plaintiffs in this case, they have a higher bar for what they have to show in order to get the default judgment. So they've actually been able to show evidence and proof that these states, these state governments have sponsored these active terrorism. And that's why these default judgments have gone through. Obviously, it's a one-sided, um, one-sided evidence because um, these foreign governments aren't showing, aren't be able to rebut the evidence because they're not showing up. Um, but still, that's pretty significant. Um, well, I mean, what I would jump in is, you know, again, this bill doesn't give, you know, foreign governments standing in the U.S. to sue U.S. individuals or even the U.S. government. But if foreign governments were to pass a bill with identical language um, to either one of the two bills that we've we've been discussing today, um, I mean, there are a number of of even U.S. allies who who could potentially look into suing the United States government. Um, You know, if we want to talk about recent events in the Middle East, obviously I'm Right now, Turkey is in is in the middle of a, um, an extradition battle with the United States. So, um, as I'm sure most of you know, there was a, a coup attempt in Turkey over the summer. Um, it, the Turkish government believes it was it was caused by what's called the Gulen movement, which is this. Um, they're a Muslim movement inside Turkey, but I, I don't think it's fair to call them Islamists. They don't seek to create Sharia law in the country. They're, they're, in many ways, I would say comparable to the Jesuit movement and Catholicism. Um, and the leader of the Gulenist movement, Fethullah Gulen, has lived in Pennsylvania since 1999. Um, and as part of this um, purge of, of, of the Turkish government and this attempt to go after the people responsible for the coup, um, the president of Turkey, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, has asked that the United States extradite uh, Gulen to Turkey. <coughs> now, obviously, the United States cannot extradite someone overnight. It's it's a complicated process. Um, you know, the Department of Justice needs to determine that what that person did is a crime inside the United States, and then the Department of State ultimately has the final yes/no whether we send them based on how they feel the rule of law is in that country and whether this person that we're extraditing can get a fair trial. Um, and so that's that's caused a lot of tension between the United States and Turkey at a time when we're already having a tense relationship. So you know. If the Turkish government says, well, this organization, the Gulenist movement, is a terrorist organization, you're allowing them, the leader of this country, to reside inside the United States, you're not extraditing him, you know, that, that definitely would be a, a, someone that they might want to, something that they might want to sue the United States over. And even beyond that, Turkey could say that, well, you know, United States, in Syria, you're arming uh, the YPG, the Kurdish militias. We view them as an extension of the PKK, the Kurdish Workers' Party, who both the United States and Turkey... Um, and a lot of European countries recognize as a terrorist organization. So, I, you know, I don't think Turkey would be likely to sue the United States, but Erdogan... But they could. They, they could. And, the and, and Erdogan, is, Erdogan is, in a lot of ways, very Putin-esque. He's very much... He's very impulsive. 
he, but he, but he's also pragmatic. I mean, I think that if it came to where he tried to sue the United States, I think eventually the, the case would be rescinded. And again, it's there would probably be a default judgment. I doubt the United States is going to go. The United States isn't going to pay. Exactly. They refuse. And so, you you know, the Turkish government does have some U.S. assets. I'm sure they have some treasury bonds, but I don't think it's huge. Um, Also, I love that you called it Putin-esque. That's yes. actually, I think that should be a new way to describe it's people. Definitely, there are definitely leaders who are Putin-esque. <laughs> um, but I think more importantly than this, speaking of these default judgments, the United States is, is almost in no case ever going to defend itself because of the, the fear of discovery. So if the United States were ever to defend itself in trial, we might have to reveal things about our clandestine activities abroad and, you know, things that... We just don't want the world, what I want a foreign government to have access to and knowledge of. So um, to give an example of this, there was, there was recently a case filed by the Department of Justice against a guy, a United States citizen named uh, Mark Turi. Now, Mark Turi is an arms dealer. He's an international arms dealer. That's, that's his line of business. And he was accused of selling arms illegally to some Libyan rebels um, during the Libyan uprising. Um, this is a case that just was dismissed. Uh, the case was actually set to start on election day, um, interestingly enough. And the case was dismissed, and the reason it was dismissed was uh, basically the DOJ said that they were the, the issue of discovery was going to bring to light things that they were afraid were sensitive. So this guy, who was facing a significant amount of jail time, um, has been able to settle due to the Obama administration wanting to dismiss the case. Um, his punishment is no longer criminal. It's a civil settlement with a $200,000 fine that will be waived as long as this guy doesn't sell any arms for four years. Hmm. So, essentially, the the complaint there was that this guy, Mark Torrey, had basically said, look, uh, what I did wasn't illegal. I had, like, a handshake deal with the State Department and with the CIA to be providing arms to these people as part of U.S. policy. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say that there's probably some fact to that, given that the government was afraid of what might come up in Discovery, um, a lot of people are saying, oh, this was, this was done because it would make Clinton look bad. Well, the, the trial wasn't even going to start talking to the election, so I, I think that that's not true. I think the real concern was that um, we don't want to reveal what the CIA is doing around the world, especially when it comes to arming groups, especially in a sensitive time where we're arming groups in Syria that, that's controversial. Um, so this <coughs> is definitely, I think, honestly, I feel like this is a much more serious implication of this than, than anyone suing the U.S. government because... You know, you're going to sue the U.S. government. Nothing's really going to come of that. We're not going to give you any money. But if we were ever forced for some reason to have to have some kind of discovery, I think that would be very, very harmful to U.S. interests abroad. Mm-hmm. Okay, so just to recap, um, now that all the congressmen are, you know, are regretting their decision to pass this bill. Buyer's remorse, I've heard it called, which I like that term for this. Buyer's remorse, absolutely. Um, The chances of this bill being enacted the way it is are very slim. They're probably going to rewrite it. They're going to put in a lot of provisions that narrow the reach of this bill. Um, But the scariest thing is the political implications abroad and what's going to come of our allies or even our enemies um, trying to use this to their own to their own advantage to get back at um, America. So that'll be interesting to see how that develops. Well, John, thank you for joining us. Yes, well, thank, thank you. you guys for having me. It's been a lot of fun. I think you added a lot of good um, expertise that we were not able to add. So 
I really appreciate you being on the show. Um, if you like our show, you should subscribe. That would really help us out. Also, if you have any questions, you can go to supremebenchwarmers.com or email us at uh, supremebenchwarmers at gmail.com. Also, like our Facebook page. Uh, we will be posting new episodes weekly. So join us next week, and thank you for sticking around. Bye, guys.